And welcome to a really exciting episode of Digging Up the Past. While they are all exciting episodes, I am super excited about this one. I am your host, Petros Katupis, and today we have a special guest discussing one of my favorite historical topics. We have a seriologist, Dr. Stephanie Daly, and we will be discussing the ancient Assyrians. More specifically, the ancient Neo-Assyrians of Iron Age Mesopotamia. It is funny, though. I don't tend to be starstruck, but if I stumble on my words today, I am telling you why. For the last two decades, I've been reading and referencing your publications and watching your documentaries where you are either featured or interviewed in, and, well, I'll leave it at that. I do not wish to spend too much time making myself sound crazy, so with that, I welcome you to the program, Dr. Daly, but... For our listeners, can you briefly introduce yourself? Who is Dr. Stephanie Daly? Well, I call myself an Assyriologist, and nobody knows what that means. <laughs> so I have to explain. It's a form of archaeology. Um, and from my point of view, it's where people have dug up literature and records that haven't been read for 3,000 or even 4,000 years. And so I have learned to read them, and that's what I do. And I try then to work out what exactly they tell us about the civilization that was lost for such a long time. It's amazing that you've uh, you, you you mentioned you know reading these documents. I myself have uh, made attempts to learn how to read cuneiform myself. Yeah, I buy these little workbooks to help. Uh, I do it when I'm bored. A lot of times when there's time that, that I need to kill, I'm in my office. I pulled down some of these workbooks and with a pencil, I'm scratching out these cuneiform marks, trying to practice the style and, and, and the characters or symbols, I should say. And the amazing part is, correct me if I'm wrong, there's hundreds, hundreds of signs. And it's amazing that you're able to retain all of this to be able to you know, read this, these documents. How much went into just, I mean, we're talking about years of um, education. How much went into the study? And I can only imagine that during the course of your study, and, and even today, we're still discovering new signs that have new meanings. Am I You're wrong? You're right. It's a very long job to learn to be an Assyriologist. And they say that it takes a good 10 years of solid application. Well, where are you going to find the funding for that? That's why there are not very many of us. So I think part of it is book learning, but a lot of it also is handling the material and getting to know the different things about it from direct experience. And it's so difficult now for people to go to Iraq or Syria. And even in museums, it's not the same looking at a thing in a, in a cabinet behind glass. So I've been very lucky, actually, in my life to have been to so many of those Near Eastern countries to take part on excavations, dig up these thrilling tablets, clean the mess off them, because they're only made of mud, and <laughs> try to read them. Yeah, it does make me sad, though, when, when you mention going to these countries, because, yes, not, which, which I'll, I'll touch on later on in this uh, conversation, but it just depresses me because I want to visit these sites. And by the early 2000s, it became near impossible. 
because of all the, the wars, the dangers for, for especially for Westerners to be able to travel to these areas nowadays. And and it just it saddens me because I don't know if I'll be able to do it in my lifetime. I don't know if a lot of my listeners will be able to do it in their lifetime. But it's also funny that you mentioned, um, you know, behind glass in museums. I routinely go to the Oriental Institute of the University of Chicago. I live in Chicago. And to me, this this museum or it's Today, it, they've renamed it to the Institute for the Studies of Ancient Cultures, I believe is the new name for it. They recently changed it in the last year. But anyway, I've spent decades looking at these, uh, these tablets, these stone slabs, uh, what have you behind the glass. And it's just, I don't know, it's, it's like you're stepping into another world, especially at the OI, which is our topic today. They have an amazing Neo-Assyrian exhibit. Most of which was excavated from uh, Der Sharuk and from Sargon's palace. Uh, and I mean, the Lamassu at the back of the hallway, if, as soon as you just walk into the gallery, it's just, it just blows you away. There's so many people out there have, that, who have never heard of the Assyrians. And the thing is, Assyria played a very prominent role in our history. And yet, like I said, in the Western world, so many have either not heard of them or heard very little. They are credited for creating one of the world's first empires. Now, to me, the credit really goes to uh, the Akkadians that preceded them under the rule of uh, Sargon uh, the Great. But either way, uh, the the Assyrians, they had a vast empire that stretched all the way to the, uh, the Mediterranean. And throughout the constant turmoil and struggles, you know, they, they continued to find some way to keep control and stabilize the region. But I know this is a, a, a bit of a loaded question, but in general terms, can you help tell us who were the, uh, the Assyrians? Who were the Neo-Assyrians? Well, you have to begin at the beginning with the Assyrians and see that they are a trading nation. And that's a bit of a surprise because everybody thinks of them as very militaristic partly because we're a culture ourselves now that are based on looking at pictures rather than reading books, in fact. There's much more looking at pictures. And all you see is battles and people bringing tribute and all this sort of thing from the Neo-Assyrian palaces. But you, you forget then that the origins come from trading and it's still there in the from the ninth century onwards when Assyria is building up its great empire. One of the reasons it's doing that is to expand trade. It's not just to control people. You Obviously, you have to do that as well. But the main purpose is to increase wealth and to make Assyria a desirable group to belong to, rather like America may drop a bomb on Japan, but it still is a place that many people want to go and live in because it has such a high standard of living. Yes, you're right. When people think of Assyria, or the few that know ancient Assyria, when they think of Assyria, they think of the Assyrian war machine. I think for most Westerners, the view of Assyria that they have tends to be from what they read in the Old Testament. The books of kings, chronicles, to to even prophets such as Isaiah. And the biblical view tended to portray them in somewhat of a a negative light. And and it sort of made sense to to some of these ancient scribes because possibly, and and, and I get what you're saying, and I 1 million percent agree, 
But, you know, from the view of these scribes, I can only imagine that in some cases they were feeling like this rule was in a sense oppressing them or or something to that extent. But and, and I base that only on the the writings themselves, which we have to take with a grain of salt, because we have found direct evidence such as the, the Sennacherib prism that tends to show us different sides to some of these biblical stories. But anyway, the archaeology, like I said, with the with the prism, the Sennacherib prism, tended to show a different side. Uh, for instance, in the uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, the monarch, the Judahite king, Manasseh, who, uh, was a, who was a contemporary to Esharadon, he was named as one of the vassals, if, if, if you recall, who assisted the Neo-Syrians during their campaigns against Egypt. But it seems that he took advantage of this Assyrian rule or being under Assyrian rule, because like you said, Assyria was a trading empire. And during the rule of Manasseh, the Judahite monarch was credited for reviving Judah's uh, rural e- economy. And and through the aid of Assyria, he stimulated the, the export market, which you know was likely olive oils or, or something like that. But anyway, it's it's interesting that you say that because in my readings of Neo-Assyria, you see these trade routes that are essentially not necessarily created, but like reinforced and so much going on in terms of just connecting this ancient world. So I actually find it pretty interesting that, that you are saying that. It, it just, it reassures what I've been thinking this entire time during my studies, during my readings. The other side of it is um, the war piece. Because while they are a trading nation, they are known for their wars, are they not? Uh, that's like you said, that's what we see in the reliefs. That's what we find in the documentation. And they are pretty well known for their cruel methods of uh, maintaining control. I don't know if you wanted to get into that, but it's for people just getting into the topic of the Neo-Assyrians. It's actually one of the more interesting topics. Well, yes, everybody likes a bit of violence. Exactly. In their history. Um, But you have to look, for instance, at some of the books of the Iliad, and you'll see that there is just as dreadful amounts of aggression and meaningless aggression often. And in my opinion, with the Assyrians, when you look at their sculptures, for instance, the Siege of Lachish, where they capture this town just near Jerusalem, And you see that they are treating different people very differently. There are a very few people who are killed and they are beheaded and their heads put on stakes or they are flayed and so on. But most of the people are leaving the city as deportees. They're going to a better land, as, of course, they're told by the the propaganda of the Assyrians. And they're going there with their children, with their menfolk, with their goods. The girls, the women, are, and the small children are riding on a cart. And we know from the correspondence of the kings that there's great efforts made to make sure that they are fed well when they are on the journey and when they arrive. So this is not the treatment that you imagine from the rhetoric of the annals, for instance, of the kings, where the rhetoric is designed to make you scared so that you won't upset their arrangements. 
the arrangements of the Assyrians. And it's very carefully done. Yeah, I can see that. Just for example, with the northern kingdom of Israel, you know, we, we read about the exile of the Israelites when Assyria came in. But then in the annals, we read so much about just the importance of, of the Israelites to the Assyrians, such as the Israelite horses and things of that nature, where the Assyrians are taking advantage and, and, and utilizing these Israelites within their armies, within their military campaigns, among other things. So, like I said, it, our Western view tends to be a bit tainted when it comes to the Neo-Assyrians, or at least the brief knowledge of the Neo-Assyrians that has been captured in the Old Testament. So how long has the study of Assyriology have been? How long have we been correcting this history, this viewpoint? I mean, it's only been one and a half centuries, if that. Am I wrong? Yes, it's about uh, maybe 170 years now that we've been trying to understand these things. And of course, you you first of all take a literal view of the texts that you think you've managed to read correctly. And then after a while, if you compare the official records with the day-to-day correspondence of the officials, you'll find that there is a tremendous amount of literary rhetoric that has gone into the annals for good reasons because that's the thing that is going to get across to Manasseh and so on in Israel, or go to Sumeria and the the people who are deported from there. But the letters and so on show how carefully they were looked after. The kings and some of their families, I mean, Hezekiah's wives and daughters all go to Nineveh, and a lot of them are musicians. And you just imagine Hezekiah's Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra has arrived in Nineveh and having a great time absorbing the music of that great place. They're living in the palace. And some of the deportees from royal families are eventually sent back to their capitals to help or even to be pro-Assyrian. Now, you, don't, you won't achieve that if you beat them up. So if you give them palace life with music, dancing, and some fun, they will go back and say, gosh, it was marvelous. Why don't we stay with these people, make our trading arrangements, all the facilities that we get with being the Syrian client nation, or whatever you want to call it. It reminds me a lot of uh, the Persian period, where the Persians came in, they essentially took over uh, the Neo-Babylonian uh, empire and and you know they said hey guys uh continue doing what you're doing just know that we are uh ruling over you but you know you you can you can do your thing you can practice your gods you can uh or pray to your gods and and sacrifice to them but just remember we're at the top but it's it's a similar structure and and you you you're you're sort of killing with kindness over there <laughs> So I get it. I get it. And it's a it's a smart tactic. And for being one of the world's first empires, you know, they were pretty smart for doing that. Well, it's hearts and minds, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you don't you can't always rule by fear. I I, I have children uh, that tend to, uh, let's just say, push our buttons all the time. And uh, the, 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 the problem is I grew up in an old school Greek household and when um when when my parents wanted to maintain control 
You know, it was essentially a rule by fear. But I've come to learn as a parent myself that that doesn't always work. Sometimes you, you just need to find other ways to communicate or negotiate with these little terrorists. <laughs> and then they end up doing your bidding a little bit more or doing what you want a, a little bit more listening. But uh, it's it's a smart tactic. Well, the important thing, I think, is that everybody's got to pay their taxes. <laughs> yes. And if they don't with the Assyrians. That's, that's, that's when you step in. Yeah. So you did mention, okay, now you, I, I hear you and, and uh, pronouncing it Nineveh, but I've always pronounced it Nineveh. What, so Nineveh is the correct pronunciation? Or I it's... Don't think there's no such thing as a correct pronunciation. We don't know how they pronounced it. <laughs> and it probably changed over time. So oh, just I'm... like here with anything yeah, else. Exactly. I'm quite happy if I say Nineveh and you say Nineveh, that's all right by me or the other way around. And everybody can know what you meant. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, but before I get, you know what? I'm jumping the gun. Before I get to the topic of uh, Nineveh, because I'm actually pretty excited to talk about this topic, uh, I wanted to also spend a little bit of time talking about the people who opposed Assyria. You know, Assyria's to the north of uh, Mesopotamia, but they had the, the Babylonians to the south. I believe it was the Elamites to the east. They have the, the 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 kingdom of Urartu to the north. To the west, they pretty much conquered most of it. But, I mean, what was it like uh, for the Neo-Assyrians to maintain some sort of stability with their borders? They were in constant conflict with the Urartians. A- am I wrong? Well, you only hear about it when they are <laughs> in conflict, don't you? You're not going to hear about the peaceful bits. Um, it's true that they've got to defend their boundaries all the time. And it's a problem for every group that if they're richer than their neighbours, the neighbours will come and try and pinch the stuff. So <laughs> you just think of raiding as what the poorer people do to the richer people. Yeah. And at that time, the Assyrians uh, were seen as a bit of a world power. You also read of these constant sackings and, and taking of their the statues of their deities to put them in their own temples and then burning down of cities. It's But you're right. Just like today, you, you only hear about it when there is conflict. I think you have to be very careful of the translations that say they sacked the city. If you look at Sennacherib's account of his sacking of Babylon, it sounds as if he absolutely flattened the place. He flooded it. He burnt it. He he really did the job, and it was flat. A well, flat I take it literally. I, so I'm okay. glad you're 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 saying this because when I read it, I read it literally. It's like yeah. you're burning it to the ground. No, but he didn't. The archaeologists couldn't find a single trace of it there. So uh, single what, trace of what the, the it being of, burnt. Yeah. Of it being sacked. Okay. So what they mean by the the expressions they're using is it's an epic vocabulary. It's, you know, if you say I smashed his face in in a conflict 
between individuals doesn't necessarily mean that. It might mean he broke his nose and there was blood all over the place, but it might not be what your first impression would be from the language used, that every bone was shattered and so on. It isn't the case. And with sacking, what they really are after is, first of all, to break down part of the walls and part of the gates so that the city can't shut itself off and defend itself from invaders. And secondly, it takes away their gods because the gods protect the city. And if they take the gods out, the statues out, the city is can't do its rituals. It can't perform the things that are needed to keep it safe. So, so uh, propaganda is what you're saying. Kind of propaganda. And sort of de- demoralizing because Judah had Yahweh, Babylon had Marduk. Uh, who, who did the Urartians have? I forget the name of their uh, their, their deity, but and, well, and, Haldi is one of them. Yes, Haldi. Yes. Yes, yeah, Haldi. And then the Assyrians had Asher. And then you take that away, and then all of a sudden they feel like their world has been turned upside down. Yes. And of course, once the god is not there to protect the city, you can take anything you want in the way of booty. Yes. That's what you're doing. You're, You're sacking the city, but you're not really turning it into a marsh forever and ever. There would be a trace of that in the archaeology, and we have to really reevaluate the way that we understand these epic style inscriptions. That's fascinating because, again, I've always just interpreted it as the city is is just not necessarily pure rubble, but for the most part, just broken down to near nothing, and then the the citizens would have to rebuild everything from bottom up again. But it's it's fascinating that you say that. I just always took it as it was said. And I'm sure the earliest seriologists did the same way. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, one of our students has written an interesting study about the story that Tolstoy wrote. And Tolstoy had a very, very early attempt to translate when people didn't really understand the words. And it sounds extremely violent, but now you know that they got it all really from their biblical understanding of what the Assyrians were like, and they were simply guessing, and they didn't get it right because there was no way of checking what they did. Well, you know, the thing is, uh, early early archaeology was heavily influenced by the Bible, so we are still correcting and rewriting a lot of that history, as unfortunate yeah. as that is. And also, unfortunately, both the Bible and even... To another extent, uh, ancient mythologies were used to fill in gaps in the early days. So we're still going back and correcting that. It's a very, very painstaking, uh, painstakingly long process, and, and we're not there yet. And there's still so much that we don't know and uh, so many gaps that we have yet to fill. But yeah, unfortunately, the discipline itself started off a bit biased. <laughs> yes, you can say that again. So it, it, there's quite a dispute going on, you know, do we accept the violence view of Assyrian society? Or That's do the entertaining do... view. That's the one, you know, it sells, violence sells. That's what's in the movies, right? Exactly. But, there, well, there is one wonderful film that was made a long time ago called Intolerance. And it was showing the Babylonians as wonderfully peaceable, cultured people. And I think that's... An, 
a fight that's still going on. Some people say, well, should we be taking one of the Greek views that these people became so decadent and so, you know, um, so relaxed over life and they ate and they drank and they whored and that they that's why the the empire fell. And actually now we're discovering the evidence for how the fall of Assyria was not a great big crash like that. It was a very gradual process. Gradual process, as in, I mean, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Well, what we found is that, first of all, Nineveh was sacked, Nineveh and probably Nimrud as well. And then the dynasty continued at Haran for a few years. And then after Haran, too, was taken over by the Babylonians, we found that there were Assyrian-style records still being kept nearby in the cities. Now, that was very unexpected for us. And we've also found that at Uruk, the great worker of the Bible, there were Assyrian records that have been copied and enjoyed and part of the curriculum or part of their traditional literature centuries later down in Uruk. So it wasn't a great sort of everything wiped out. And we found that there were people living in this enormous palaces that no doubt parts of them were shattered. And we know that they were, but we also know that the Parthians and so on went on living in parts of them and some Greeks as well. You remind me of Greece during Roman Roman rule. Greece still stood on its own in the early days of the uh, the Roman Empire, and and the Romans still appreciated and respected Greek culture and and helped keep Greece uh, alive and and uh, free of threats. You know, external threats. They made sure that these people whom they've respected and adopted, you know, a, a good chunk of their culture from were, were still around, right? So I, I imagine that that was something similar going on in uh, Mesopotamia. Well, a big city doesn't just lose the whole of its population overnight, does it? No, no. <laughs> they, they want to go back to their houses when the shoutings died down, pick up the bits, see what they can do with society. You you mentioned again. You mentioned Nineveh, and you know this 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 topic I find extremely interesting. I wanted to talk about the Hanging Gardens. For millennia, we have believed that this wonder of the world was located in Babylon. Well, you know because this is what we find in ancient writings. But in your research, you you relocate these gardens to the north and in one of the ancient Neo-Syrian capitals, Nineveh, and. And I recently watched a wonderful documentary, uh, which was starring yourself, uh, as you prove that this is very likely the case. And the documentary was was fascinating, and at the same time, also very scary, because you're traveling to, to Mosul, to, to Iraq, which uh, wasn't a safe place at the time. Now, I wanted to just ask what led you or what initiated this path towards your your discovery what made you think i these these hanging gardens this this does not sound right that they're in babylon i think they're up north where where what started this thought process and and can you please describe how you got to this this theory and and conclusion without getting too deep into the into the weeds 
Well, it started when I was asked to give a talk to a garden society in Edinburgh on ancient gardens in Mesopotamia. And I thought, well, there's a nice subject. I'll gather up all that I can find on it. And I found quite a lot, but I couldn't find anything about the hanging gardens at Babylon that was contemporary with the time when they were supposed to have been made. And I thought, this is ridiculous. And at the end of my talk, a rather angry lady got up and said, well, I came here hoping to find out about the hanging gardens of Babylon, and you haven't even mentioned them. Well, it's all rather distressing when you've given what you thought was quite a decent talk, and somebody gets up and says, you've disappointed me completely. So I went home and I thought, well, there must be an answer to this. All of the other world wonders we think existed. And what's happened to this particular tradition? And I've been looking at that ever since and realised rather late on that one of the problems was that the Assyrians and the Babylonians, their culture was thought to have ended completely with either Alexander the Great or Cyrus or whoever. So that when you go to university and study this, that's where you you get your cut-off line. And that's much too early for all the, the Greek sources that talk about the Hanging Garden. So nobody believed the Greek sources. They thought they were all rubbish. But now that we know better, we can say, well, there is a direct transmission of information and texts and so on through what we previously thought was a complete gap. And that means that you can take the Greek sources literally. And then if you look at what happened at Nineveh and to Sennacherib's own inscriptions, you can trace what he is talking about. He has made a world wonder. And in every respect, we can match the details with the Greek sources. So that was the trajectory, as it were. But uh, there were a lot of things that had to be sorted out on the way. And uh, that's why I wrote the book. And of course, when we made the documentary, that made it very easy for the producers to see what they could do with with the topic. Because otherwise, you just get interviews with scholars who say, well, you know, we haven't found it and we don't know, and maybe it never existed, and maybe it was a fairy story, and maybe and maybe. But finding actual evidence was very pleasing. And at the moment, there are some Italians who are excavating in a palace of Sennacherib in Nineveh, in near Mosul, and they are finding astonishing waterworks which they, you know, it's as good as anything in Rome. And everybody thought that aqueducts and good drainage and, you know, a good um, sewage system were Roman. The Romans were good at that. But actually, it starts much, much earlier. Yeah, you see it in the documentary, You, you the aqueducts and, and the irrigation system. I remember just outside of Mosul coming from, what, the northern mountains, Am, yeah. am I remembering this correctly? It's been it's been like six months since I've seen it on uh, <laughs> on uh, Amazon Prime streaming, but uh, but yeah, you 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 see this in the in the documentary, and I know when when you were traveling to Iraq uh, in the documentary, they um, had uh, you had consulted or or contracted with uh, some locals to be able to go to uh, Sennacherib's. Um, 
uh, palace or, or to, to Nineveh and take photographs of the various areas. And, and I don't remember, I think there was a drone used to, to be able to take some aerials and you were able to mark out regions where there was potential for an irrigation system to feed water into the, uh, into, into Nineveh. Am I remembering this correctly? Well, not about the drones. It, it was a bit pre-drone. <laughs> okay. It's quite a long time ago now that we made that. Um, so we really? Doing... Was that long ago? Yeah, it was. I don't, I, okay. Yeah, I, I only recently saw it. And uh... yes. Well, if it were done now, you certainly would use drones. But at the time, you know, with the worry for, for the Iraqis about attacks and yeah. terrorist attacks and so on, there was no way you could have um, taken a drone into the country and used it freely over a difficult zone. But, you know, you also had other evidence that was presented, and that is like actual reliefs. You know, you see the Assyrian images of these hanging gardens, which to me is just, if that doesn't prove it alone, <laughs> I don't I don't know what does. You can see the Assyrians literally draw out these are the hanging gardens. Right. And you see the aqueducts and, and the entire irrigation system in these reliefs. Yeah. I must I, I can only imagine just the feeling when you stumbled upon these these images. Well, I mean it was very exciting. And of course you had to plow through a lot of literature to find the things that you wanted and to make sure that you weren't inventing it as you went along because there's always a worry that when you get excited about something you will press the evidence harder than you should but I thought it was completely compelling and some of my colleagues think so but others are still back in the kindergarten with the picture they saw in the encyclopedia. Yeah and and that's the crazy part you provide this evidence that, you know, the hanging gardens are in the north, in Nineveh. And just like I've mentioned earlier, you know, nowadays, we as a people are, are attempting to rewrite, you know, a lot of these inaccuracies that we have been relying on in the history of, of humankind. And even though, to me, you've convinced me that the hanging gardens are in, in the north, but it just, it, I find it irritating and frustrating that we're going to go for many more generations that, you know, with people still believing that they're in Babylon. Just knowing that would continue to frustrate me. I, I, I don't know how, how you feel about it, but it's just, no, guys, it's, it's, it's in Nineveh. It's not in Babylon. Just look yeah. at the proof. It's right here. <laughs> Well, it's amazing, isn't it? And, and when you look at those um, images from the time in Nineveh, when the gardens were made, you see that they're, just as the text says, that the Greek texts, as well as the Assyrian texts, that the the gardens are meant to represent a mountain environment. So that on a hot day, you go up where there's shade and the fragrant trees, which are all lovely. Um, I'm sure it was gorgeous in its day. Yes, but people now, they're, they're doing, you know, CGI stuff and they're sticking date palms all over it. There isn't a single date palm to be seen and you don't grow date palms up mountains. <laughs> and, you know, they're not even looking at the visual evidence, which yeah. they tend to be taking half of it from. 
So I have to really just go and do something else instead of spending my life being furious. (laughs) (laughs) You'll drive yourself crazy. (laughs) Well, it was a fascinating documentary. Now, you said you did it. It happened a while ago. The documentary itself, not the research. How long ago was the documentary? How long ago did you film it? Gosh, I can't remember now. Was it 2017 or something like that? That's quite Ah, That wasn't that long ago. No, but as you get older, you get older quicker. <laughs> well, my kids make me feel that way. So it's uh, just the way of life. A- anyway, I wanted to take an opportunity to thank you for, for coming on to the program. I've been, you know, a, a fan of your work for quite a bit of time. You know, I, I, I still reference your Myths from Mesopotamia book. I mean, I picked this copy up over two decades ago, and I find myself constantly, you know, going back to it. It, it has, in my personal research, it has been a valuable tool. And, and you know, the thing is, even your more modern publications, I've just been, you know, fascinated by, you know, such as the uh, the City of Babylon. To be in your shoes, to to be able to see what you've seen and, and accomplish what you've accomplished, I I'm jealous. I. <laughs> I I am at a loss for words. I it's just me being starstruck. But anyway, again, I wanted to thank you for your time. This has just been a wonderful experience, a wonderful conversation. Can I just say what you should be reading now? It's up to date. A companion to Assyria. I will look out for this literally immediately. I will It's really very good. It's got a lot of different chapters in, and you can follow your interest in whatever you want. Yeah, I've recently picked up a copy. I don't know. Here, let me pull it off my shelf. Not, It's not written by yourself, but I recently picked up a copy of uh, Eckhart Fra- Fromm's uh, Assyria, The Rise and Fall of the World's First Empire. I don't know if you can see this cover. Yes, that's a I, very, very new book, isn't it? It is. It is a very new yes. book. And. Well, uh, Eckert from uh, was the editor of this one. Oh yeah, Small World. Small World, and he's very, very good. I okay. don't agree with him about everything, but that's half of the course. Well then, if I will pick up a copy of the book that uh, you just showed me, and after I read the both of them, I will send you a message over email asking which parts you disagree with. Okay. <laughs> So expect that in the the very, very near future. But anyway, again, thank you very much. I I wanted to give you an opportunity. Uh, If you have any last words before we end our conversation, is there anything you wish to share with our listeners that could be interested in, you know, Assyria? Well, I just hope that people will start to understand what the royal records are really doing and that this is a trading nation as well as a military one. And, you know, that's something that, you know, I've always suspected and something that I'm glad you reinforced in this conversation. But anyway, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again. It's been my pleasure. And we have come to an end with another great episode. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Substack newsletter where you will get a lot more awesome historical content. Also, Let me know your thoughts and whether you'd like to see more community-driven discourse via the new Substack Threads feature accessible from the Substack Reader mobile application.
Got something to say? Or do you have ideas for topics to cover in future episodes? Then be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me at petros at petroscatupis.com. Who knows? It may even be featured in an upcoming newsletter, video, or podcast episode. This is Petros Katupis signing off.